Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio station where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the 383rd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Christy Wilson Bowers, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Missouri, who is going to talk to us about the long history of social distancing. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toplin. The show's song is titled Kayla's Theme and is written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer, producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of the show, which is called Farouk Dinarin. And today we'll be talking about the long history of social distancing with Dr. Christy Wilson-Bowers, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Missouri. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's sort of go back as far into the beginning as we can go. Can you give us a little bit of background as to how social distancing um, was used? I was thinking of the, the medieval and early modern periods, but if you can go farther back into history, that would be terrific, too. Okay, sure. Uh, well, if we want to go uh, further back in history, some people would trace the origins of this perhaps even back to uh, early biblical times with leprosy. And that's probably the first disease that made people want to be distant and avoid each other. And that raised concerns about um, whether somebody could be tainted by being close to someone who had this disease, because it's a very visible uh, and disfiguring disease. So uh, certainly in ancient times and, and in the Middle Ages, uh, leprosy is the first disease that, that creates this idea of isolating someone uh, outside of the community, quarantining them outside of the community, and uh, trying to avoid them. And then if we go a little bit um, also in the medieval times, we have, of course, the outbreak of bubonic plague, the first big epidemic that's known as the Black Death that hit Europe in the mid-14th century. And there we have this same ideas, and this is really where most historians would trace the origins of some of this distancing, quarantining, and isolation as an active public health process uh, to those epidemics at that time. And the idea, again, of uh, trying to separate the sick from the healthy in order to keep the healthy healthy and prevent them from becoming sick. Okay. Um, I often think when I, when I think of these kind of outbreaks, the um, and I totally agree with your assessment on the biblical references, but I also think, often think of the uh, Peloponnesian War when you have Athens versus Sparta. And right when they're ready to go at each other, of course, uh, smallpox hits the, uh, the island states, and it starts tearing everybody apart, especially on the Athenian side. Um, right. Are there other references that you know of that, for one, I always wondered, on an island that small with such a dangerous disease like smallpox, there's not a lot of alternatives. But are there other references where you see that, you know, a big event is going to happen and then sure enough some plague comes along and changes the tables? Well, we have various outbreaks of um, epidemic diseases that get 
known by that term of plague, right? Just a sort of generalized term of a of an epidemic. Um, the the Athenian plague is is a particular example where uh, that yeah it spreads very rapidly, and we're we're in a city state in Athens where it is um, closed off, trying to be protective from a- enemy invasion, and so people have no place to go, and they have no place to put other people. Uh, so everybody's kind of uh, contained, and that probably did make things worse. It probably was smallpox. Uh, there's other epidemics um, in the ancient world that that create um, other kinds of upheavals uh, later in Roman times, for example. But um, they tend to be um, either mostly not very well documented. And so even the Plague of Athens, we know about it from Thucydides' description, but we don't have a whole lot else to talk about. Um, We have the later Plague of Cyprian, and we have limited information about it. We have what was probably pretty huge and has gotten a lot of attention lately, the Roman Plague of Justinian. Um, But that also has very limited documentation. And so it gets a little bit harder to assess exactly how people were reacting and exactly what the impact was, because we just don't have the records for it. Christy, We've spent our time so far dealing with the Western world. Um, yeah. Do we know anything about what's going on in in other parts of the world? I'm thinking particularly of of China and Asia, maybe India, um, in, in terms of this. And, and I'm really interested in is there a difference in the way the process works? I mean, do do folks in the West tend to approach social distancing, whether we're talking about isolation or quarantining or or whatever as opposed to the way folks in the east approached it yeah and that's a great question i don't know as well i don't think we have quite as much um overlap in the literature for say china which we know is experiencing epidemics as well uh and so i can't really speak to the non-western although it's obviously uh, a very important part of all of this um for one example, I can I can say if we look at the medieval, uh, again, the pandemic of the Black Death, this large outbreak of bubonic plague, um, we have more recent evidence of just how global that was. But uh, in a lot of places, we have such uh, decimation of population that um, all we're left with are a little bit of um, material remains or archaeological remains, and so we just don't know what people were doing or how they responded. In, for example, in North Africa uh, and uh, some other places. So it's a it's a great question, and I'm sorry that it's not one that I can speak to as directly as I'd like. Um, uh, this will be our last question before we go into the second uh, segment. Um, when you're talking about these pandemics that you're discussing. Are there any of them that aren't um, pretty much outbreaks from uh, domesticated animals or the animals that are pretty much engulfing uh, the humans that are living there? I know, like, for instance, typhus and that come from rats. But, uh, you know, it's more because they've set up communities that these animals come. Are there any kind of pandemics that you look at and go, wow, it's surprised that that disease took off like it did? Um, 
No, you're right that that these are uh, largely things that are passing between animal communities um, and in in some cases then, you know, become uh, human diseases. Um, And really the only thing I can, what comes to mind is not something vectored through through a a population like that is cholera, which... is around for a long time. It doesn't hit the West until the 19th century, but obviously it's in uh, India, uh, Bangladesh regions um, much earlier, which is uh, waterborne. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in a second and and try to get. So right before we get done here with the first segment, talk to us about the kinds of social distancing things that were done. And I, okay. again, probably um, the the bubonic plague in, in the 14th century is probably the easiest one to work with, or, or maybe you want to go in to early modern. Um, you know, we've done six feet apart. We've done, um, you know, stay in your house. Uh, mm-hmm. we've done th- what kinds of things did they do when they talked about social distancing or trying to deal with uh, with public health okay yeah so if we if we look um, and again yeah plague is what uh, helps bring about uh, a lot of these as specific public health practices um, and and they're they're certainly not using the term social distancing. They do um, talk about quarantining, and in fact, the term quarantine comes from the Italian for forty days, which was the early standard of how long you needed to uh, keep either people or goods uh, essentially in isolation to monitor for any signs of disease. So the the quarantigiorni, the the forty days, becomes the standard for. Um, quarantine. And, I, you know, the biggest difference is that there was not in that time period the sense that everybody needed to keep distant from everybody in the way that we are now. Um, no sense of asymptomatic carriers, but but rather it was the separation of the sick from the healthy and uh, either making people who were sick stay in their homes. In some places, it really just depends on different communities and different countries. Some places you had to stay in your home, and in some cases you were locked up into your home. Home, uh, physically locked in, and in other cases taken out of the home and made to go to uh, a quarantine hospital, uh, which in some cases were uh, originally leprosy hospitals that get um, turned over into um, other kinds of quarantine, so for plague or for um, other outbreaks. So um, it's more a sense of, of trying to remove the threat from the community, so taking the sick out and um, the, the practices of, uh, of quarantine are also applied to goods, a uh, wide variety of things, that is uh, sort of monitoring trade goods that are coming in from any place outside to uh, look for signs of corruption or contagion or anything that was off or tainted, uh, or to just simply you know, let them sit, let the wine sit for two weeks uh, or longer, and then you know, allow it to uh, come into the community. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. 
Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Christy Wilson-Bowers, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Missouri. And we're talking about the long history of social distancing. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toplin. Rick, as someone who is very familiar with social distancing, and you can tell us how, uh, you get the first question. Okay, John. Usually my social distance is only to you. Uh, (laughs) In a radio show, that means nothing, especially at these times. It it means everything to me, John. Christy, I'm I'm wondering, uh, in light of today's antagonism toward social distancing, uh, how did people react to quarantining and social distancing historically? You talked about the, you know, the uh, early classical period all, all the way through the medieval period, but uh, how did they historically deal with uh, uh, staying away from the diseased? Well, as you might imagine, it was a mixed bag. And so we certainly have those who play by the rules, um, who are willing to do what they are told. And there are those, and they tend to show up in the records more because they make a bigger ruckus, who uh, protest against it and who don't want to have to uh, change their routines or who find it very difficult to have to do that. And there's examples from uh, all different places and from many different centuries of resistance against quarantining uh, or resistance against other kinds of public health regulations. So with the advent of plague, uh, numerous places start to uh, try to limit travelers, uh, watch who is coming in. As I was talking about quarantining goods, they are are monitoring um, what's traveling on the roads and where it's coming from and where it's going to. And there are uh, efforts certainly across continental Europe to enforce at different places that people who want to travel from one city to another in a time of plague, not not all the time, but when there is an outbreak, um, need to have documents with them. They need to have health passports, as they're known. And this is simply a, a sort of essentially a notarized statement, something from a judge or uh, some other uh, councilman stating who this person is and what their business is and that they are healthy and that they're coming from a place that is healthy, that is not infected. And that's a a system that's um, widely used in Spain, where I've done research. It's widely used in Italy, which is one of the first places to develop this. And there are lots of people who try to get around that, uh, who 
you know, don't want to uh, avoid places where um, plague might have broken out because they have business and they need to get their merchandise there and they need to get it sold and they can't afford not to continue uh, to do what they normally would do or they can't uh, get a health passport for some reason or whatever it might be. So um, there's not a history of uh, large scale, certainly in the in the medieval or the early modern world, there's not a history of rioting or, uh, you know, actual protest in the streets, but there's a pretty good history of, of individual um, skirting things, trying to uh, avoid for whatever reason it might be. And, and sometimes it's a, you know, it's a pretty good individual reason that this is harmful to uh, someone who's trying to conduct their business, make their money, get back to their family, whatever it might be. Um, but there is, there is always uh, that kind of resistance. Okay. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, go no, ahead. As you can say, and, and we all know that the, the sort of much later uh, example of uh, more recent, in some ways, historical uh, example of the influenza and the, you know, the efforts of people to avoid uh, or to resist wearing masks uh, then when they were asked to. Okay. Terry. Yes, uh, Christy, you talked about diseases passing between the animal communities into the human community. Can you talk about, um, are there any preventative measures that we can take in the future, uh, or are we kind of condemned to having plagues crop up for the entire part of our human existence? Um, that's a really great question, and I would say that there's a lot being done already, and I think uh, I, I expect and hope that our current pandemic will um, revive interest and funding for um, efforts by uh, a wide uh, range of scientists to try and monitor what uh, pathogens are passing and growing uh, amongst different animal populations and what might cross over. Um, so these zoonoses have gotten attention for a long time. And um, I think in scientific communities and medical communities, it's been recognized that something like this uh, could happen, would happen at some point. And so I think that um, we are never going to be 100% on top of things. Uh, I think we have become uh, accustomed to being in control of the microbial world in a way that we really are not. And so I think that there will always have to be a caution. But I, I think that um, certainly there's already systems in place and people are already trying to monitor and anticipate what could become epidemic for us in the future. And uh, I expect that that's going to continue and will continue to grow. Great. Rick, do you have a question? Yeah, I was uh, I was just thinking about uh, uh, Christy. This is like bringing it up to current day. Have you uh, been asked uh, in your local community uh, uh, or among your colleagues to comment on on the dangers of the politi- uh, 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 the uh, making the issue of social distance a political issue? Um, I have uh, a little bit been asked about it, and um, I would absolutely say, you know, I I do think that it is incredibly uh, difficult and dangerous to make this a a political issue. Um, 
I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I have said repeatedly is that I have researched uh, plague epidemics. Um, I teach a course on epidemics and society here at the university. And uh, living through one firsthand has definitely changed my perspective on a lot of the things that I have taught over the years. And I sort of understand, uh, I think I understand much better why there is sometimes resistance to public health measures and what some of the problems are. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't fully support public health measures and, and understand why they're um, incredibly important. But, um, yeah, to to this this politicizing um, cooperation and, and community is, I think, just makes this so much more challenging and uh, and so much more difficult. Um, so hopefully we'll overcome that and uh, find a way to really uh, get everybody uh, working towards the same goal of protecting our entire community, our entire global community, and not just our local communities. Christy, um, this is Jay again. I'm curious, since you were talking about politicalization, one of the things that has certainly become a hot button is the wearing of masks. And the CDC seems to constantly change its mind about what kinds of things are really workable. Does a shield work? Does it need to be three three layers? Does it need to be you know a gator? All of those kinds of things. And I'm just thinking to myself, um, I have seen that sort of thing before. I'm thinking of plague doctor masks in, in the Middle Ages. Can you talk a little bit about how, again, sort of ancient cultures or, or medieval cultures dealt with this idea of how do I, if I have to interact with someone who has, uh, who has a disease, what can I do to protect myself? Yeah, well, you know, one of the big differences, I think, uh, looking back to these past centuries is that the conception of disease was um, quite distinctly different. And so what most people were concerned with in the medieval and early modern centuries was the miasma, that is, the air itself, which had become polluted or corrupted, and that you could uh, very often there's an association with a very bad smell in the air that's a, an indicator of that corruption. And it's it's breathing that air that is going to produce um, these symptoms and produce this disease. So it's a kind of mix of the external and the internal. So, you know, the yes, the very famous plague doctor costumes and the and the plague mask, which is really from the 17th century, um, does reflect this effort to um, prevent the the uh, breathing of corrupted air and that crazy beak that it has on it would have some kind of oh, shall we say, aromatherapy in it. It, it, it could be something pleasant-smelling uh, herbs, or it could be a, a vinegar-soaked rag or something that would simply counteract uh, the bad smell. So a lot of the measures that... Um, it, it, it's such an interesting thing to think about. Uh, we don't really have a, a clear medical theory that one person is spreading a disease to another, but they can be corrupting the air around themselves. And then that air can be uh, spreading this disease onwards. And so a lot of those efforts of cleaning up things or of separating people or of, of, of any kind of protective gear, it's a common practice for many centuries to burn herbs in the public square, uh, to, uh, you know, to whitewash 
to uh, to use lime in burial pits, and those are all things to counteract the smell and also to, to sort of counteract corruption. So it's it's much more about the environment and the air around than the actual uh, person or any kind of idea of, of microbes. Uh, Christy, 30 years ago when I was in York, England, they had a tavern called the Black Swan. And when you, it was the oldest tavern in the city of York. And when you looked up, you, you, they wouldn't let you in. And then you heard a knock and you looked up and someone looked down at you and then they let you in the bar. And my wife and I were like, wow, they don't even know us and they don't like us. However, it turned out that this was a bar that they had created this system in like the 1500s for leprosy. And they still carried out the practice of letting them in because the bar had been around that long. Have you come across any kind of other structural uh, businesses or history of that where when there are times of plagues that um, physical features were built to, to quarantine or create social distancing like that one? Well, we certainly have the building of um, quarantine stations, quarantine hospitals um, that are meant to um, keep individual patients um, not only out of their homes and out of the community, but also sometimes in separate cells, and sometimes those uh, would be built around a courtyard, so you have a sort of individual cell, but that opened onto uh, a common space, a, a courtyard, so an open door could let in uh, light and, and sunshine and things. Um, so we do have uh, some structures like that. Um, it, it's very variable across Europe. Uh, a lot of places uh, we have essentially kind of ad hoc responses to epidemics. And so um, it's more taking existing structures and repurposing them rather than building specific um, architectural features or, or architectural places. Um, but again, the, many of the what were once built as, as leprosy houses uh, get turned into um, plague quarantine houses because they were built uh, isolated. They were built outside of city walls. They were uh, sort of out somewhere. And so they provide good way stations, good quarantine stations, and uh, could be repurposed in that way. All right. Yeah, isn't the, yeah go ahead. Aren't the Canterbury Tales written by Chaucer, who the story is they're cutting out of London to avoid the plague? Isn't that its basis? Kind of the ultimate yeah. social distancing story. Sure, and as is uh, Boccaccio's Decameron, which is also right. uh, people fleeing the plague in Florence. Um, so, yeah, there's a... There, there, there is, and yet, you know, of course, these are groups that are traveling together, um, so I suppose they're in their own social bubble in that sense, uh, and they're just trying to get out someplace else from uh, a city that seems to have corrupt air, right? If we can get out into the fresh uh, countryside, we can avoid the pollution and the corruption of the air. All right. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So, Christy, why do you think knowing about the history of social distancing is relevant in today's world? Well, I think it is helpful to understand that um, though this epidemic is new to us and the 
the very concept of something that we don't know what it is and we don't really know how to control it, we're on a learning curve, um, is really new to us. But there's a long history and humanity has dealt with these emerging diseases, uh, things that people were unsure of. And uh, I think it's also really important to understand that this non-biomedical approach, uh, the idea of very simple things of keeping distance, wearing masks, washing hands, um, is really effective. And that, um, you know, people in the Middle Ages who first developed some of these practices um, weren't entirely backwards and uh, uneducated. Um, They were pretty smart. They came up with some pretty good systems that have held true and that are uh, still working for us pretty effectively today. When we get back, we will wrap things up. So please stay tuned for ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 383rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program director is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Sapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Christy Wilson-Bowers, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Missouri who talked with us about the long history of social distancing. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Terry Toplin. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians or horrible fortune tellers. Good night.